You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get going, I just want to say that support for this week's episode comes from Park Row Books, the publisher of Under My Skin by New York Times best-selling author Lisa Unger. Under My Skin is an addictive psychological thriller about a woman on the hunt for her husband's killer. Poppy is determined to unravel the mystery around her husband's death. But can she handle the truth about what really happened? You will have to listen yourself. Listen to the audiobook today, Under My Skin. Thank you to Park Row Books. Uh, also bringing you the show this week, uh, you probably know about Sheryl Sandberg and her nonprofit, Lean In. They've just launched a new podcast called Tilted. It explores gender bias that lurks in unexpected places, um, features intimate conversations with some of the world's most powerful women in Hollywood, sports, and business. On the first few episodes, Sheryl Sandberg answers questions from men on work and sex. Uh, you can subscribe, listen to Tilted today. Uh, it's from Lean In, wherever you get your podcast. So just search for Tilted. You will find it. Thank you to Lean In. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, your co-host. I'm joined by Aaron Lammer. Hey. Uh, Max Linsky is off today for the best possible reason. Uh, Max Linsky. Now, I would say in a larger sense, uh, Max Linsky is the dad of this show insofar as you and I had no idea what to do when we arrived here Correct. and did not have, have his uh, guidance. Uh, but uh, today he is uh, literally a father again. Uh, I believe his child was born around midnight. Last she night. was. She was. Welcome to the world, Noah. Congratulations to Max and the whole family. Uh, and thanks to Max uh, for everything he does for the show, which uh, sometimes we take for granted, but uh, not right now as we have struggled our way through taping this introduction. Evan, who did you talk to for the show this week? For this week's show, I talked to Liana Fink, who is a cartoonist. She, You have seen her cartoons probably in The New Yorker. If you're a New Yorker reader, you should also follow her Instagram. The best place to see what she does is probably to follow her Instagram, which has a gazillion followers, and it's amazing. Uh, she has a book out. It's a memoir. It's kind of a graphic memoir, and it's called Passing for Human. I really loved it. I won't try to describe it, but it's uh, it's unique, and uh, it's a really interesting read. Um, I, so, o- I always enjoy when we have a, uh, 
I feel like I'm not cartoonist is not the word I'm supposed to use anymore. Is it cartoonist? I feel like people self-describe in different ways, but uh, yeah. she seemed comfortable with I li- cartoons. I like, uh, I like when we have visual storytellers on yes. the show. Yes. Um, so I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, Evan, uh, I understand that you will be in the Bay Area this weekend on behalf of this podcast. That is correct. This October, what is that? The 14th Sunday I will be at the Wired 25th Anniversary Festival. It's the 25th anniversary of the launch of Wired Magazine. They're having this festival all weekend. Uh, I'm doing a live onstage, long-form podcast interview with Andy Greenberg. Silk Road storyteller. He broke some Silk Road. He also has done a lot of just secure work about security. He had that virus story recently. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Really amazing stuff. I mean, the reporting is amazing. The stories are riveting. I can't wait to talk to him. So if you buy a ticket to the festival, you can come check us out. There's a bunch of other events, including other uh, live podcasts. I think Dory Shafrir is doing their podcast live as well. So there's fun stuff. Come check it out. It's October 13th and 14th in San Francisco, the Wired 25th Anniversary Festival. If you yell something out during the show, you could hear yourself on the podcast. It's an opportunity to not get that, not on that the I, Not that I encourage that. Uh, if you want to express yourself, the way to do so is not yelling at during a live podcast taping, but starting an email newsletter. Mm. Do it the respectful way. Um, I feel like there's a lot of people out there. I was on the receiving end of one of the most uh, epic um, non-BCC emails that I've <laughs> no. ever- uh, That still ever, happens. Oh, yeah. Well, you know why it still happens? People are using their personal emails to send out what should be sent out as newsletters. Uh, there's a better way to do it. It's with MailChimp. I don't think you even pay up to a certain number of people. So start it off. You won't even be paying for it until it uh, goes so big that it would be offensive if you failed to BCC it, and it might- change what everyone thinks about you forever. I'm not saying any specific names, but uh, I saw a lot of people's email this week as a result of it. Thank you, MailChimp, for your support. Uh, Here's Evan with Liana Fink. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So first we should say we share a book editor. Yes. That is how I got slipped an early copy of your book. Yes. Um, which is amazing and I love and is so unique. I mean, I've never read anything like it, which leads me to my other disclosure that I don't really know that much about cartooning, including just like the technical details of how you do your work. So I'll just be questioning you a lot from like an ignorant perspective. Um, but the book... I've seen you describe it as a kind of feminist memoir mixed with a fairy tale. And I really liked that description. And when I read it, I, that seemed very apt. But how would you describe it in terms of like the memoir content of it? Because there's this thing at the beginning that there isn't a lot of books where it's sort of like some of the names have been changed, including my own, which I thought was interesting. And some of the facts have been altered also. And so to what extent were you trying to write something that felt very tied to your experience versus something that just jumped off from your experience? I hadn't set out to write a memoir. I had set out to write fiction and it turned into a memoir and then it got a little extra memoiry and I noticed that my family was a little weirded out by me revealing truths about them and that's why I tampered with the names and some of the facts. I didn't want anyone to be able to identify themselves and I didn't want to reveal anything weird. So if there was a weird thing, I, I turned it into a different weird thing. So let's start a little bit back then. What you said, you, you how did you start out then in terms of writing this book? 
like you wanted to write fiction. What was the original concept? The original concept was kind of a bad idea. I was a young comics artist. I didn't have confidence that I could sell a book. So I thought, what's something I could sell? So far, I'd sold and had finished one book that was an ad- adaptation of letters written into a Yiddish advice column, which also like was a really great book to do. It wasn't quite a book I would do. It was too, I don't know, like fact-based. I'm really not, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a researcher. And that book required more research than I could do well, I think, but it was a good Because book. you were literally trying to recreate some yeah. of the scenes from the letters. Yeah, like I'm not I'm not even good at like Googling what did hats look like in 1906. Like <laughs> I don't want to, <laughs> but I did for the book, but that's all I did pretty much. Uh-huh. And but but I made that book because I was applying for a grant and I won the grant and it was a good grant application. It had like a solid structure of what it was. And so when I finished that book, I thought, what's a new book with a solid structure that I can get some people on board that'll give me the confidence to make a book? And so I thought, why don't I adapt a famous novel into a graphic novel? And I thought, why don't I adapt The Real Life of Sebastian Knight by Vladimir Nabokov into a graphic novel? And so it started as that. And by the time I heard from Nabokov's estate that I wasn't allowed to do that. <laughs> I was maybe five very hard-worked pages in, and so I very slowly started changing that into fiction that was just based on the real life of Sebastian Knight. It turned the two brothers, one's like a brilliant writer who has died, the other is telling his story. Um, it takes place in, I don't know, 1930 or something, and I changed those to two sisters who were growing up in the 80s. And I said it in my childhood house, and that's how it became a memoir. So the the whole time this book is evolving into a memoir, and then at what point, at what point did the book solidify into, okay, now I know what this is going to be, and I'm and you take it to a publisher, and how long did that process take? A long time. I was the re- this book is told in a series of chapter ones, <laughs> and each of them really was a chapter one. Really? Yeah, and it took me. I've been working on it for about six years, and I don't think I started looking for an editor until about two years ago. Oh, wow. So the question I have, which is, I guess, would also be a question I could pose to our shared editor, Andy Ward, but um, the book, it has this unique structure. As you say, it's like chapter one, and then you finish chapter one, and it's like chapter one. And it also has a sort of different elevated views of what's happening in the book. You're writing the book in parts and you have different voices that are speaking to you, telling you to do it different ways. And how do you deal with an editor on something like this? Like, does someone actually read this and say, actually, you need a little more scenes of this or scenes of that? I don't even know how a graphic novel gets edited is what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm really, really lucky I have Andy because he, I've heard a rumor that it's because he comes from magazines, but he edits by printing out what I send him as a PDF and he like marks it up in red pen and he scans it in and sends it back. He's very, very hands-on. And in between the chapter ones, I have these conversations that um, some behind the scenes knowledge, I really wish I had worked harder on those pages and spent more time with them. But (laughs) I have like a picture of myself at a desk being attacked by these rat-like creatures that are called the fears that gnaw. And they're like, this chapter is not a good chapter. You have to start over. And they coach me to rip up the past chapter and start over. 
And those fears are kind of Andy and kind of my agent, Meredith Kapel Simonoff, <laughs> and kind of myself. Yeah, I felt like anyone who's ever tried to do anything creative could relate to that part of the book yeah. deeply. Because also, I thought when I first saw them, maybe they were those sort of cliched, like, good thing, bad thing on your shoulder, like from yeah. a cartoon, yeah, you exactly. know? But they're actually both... There's not a good one. And then they trick you. So they say, redo this part. And yeah. then you do. And they're like, why did you do that? Yeah. They're kind of tough love. They're also my mom who's like, she's very good at giving me advice, but she's like the embodiment of a Libra. She'll give me advice one day and then the next day she'll give me the opposite advice. Uh-huh. She feels terrible about the fact that she has so much power over me. So she doesn't want to sway me. So uh-huh. the fears kind of do that. They're like, you're writing about your dad. This isn't supposed to be a book about your dad. This is supposed to be a book about yourself. And then the next day after I've written a whole chapter about myself, they'll say, why are you being so selfish? This is supposed to be a book about your family. And how did you get a sense of when you feel like something's finished, like a chapter, one of these chapter ones, when does it feel complete for you? And maybe this is a question that starts further back and sort of how your process works. The way I work is I'll write a chapter very, very fast, like on a sheet of paper that I've divided into a grid, and I won't even add pictures. And in the moment of making it, it feels totally complete. But that's not something I would show anyone. And Mm -hmm. then I start, I use a light box and I trace it and I add details as I trace it. And maybe 10 drafts later, I think it's ready to show someone. But I also think that as I get more and more confident, I need to show people less and I know more when I'm finished. And and I think this book isn't quite finished. And maybe by the time I write my last book, it'll be finished. But I don't think a book needs to be finished. It's kind of a record of your thought process. And so just to get into the technical details there a little bit. So you do you do everything on pen and paper or is there any digital aspect to it? This book I did all on pen and paper, and then I kind of modified it on Photoshop. I I left a lot of, whenever I make a mistake, I'll cross it out and write the right thing or the right drawing in the margin, and then I'll bring it in in Photoshop. But I was making a point in this book. It's about, um, the point is about women's work, where all the blacks are colored in with a very fine pen, and it took me... (laughs) many hours to do that of total mindless labor (laughs) and I wanted it to seem kind of like knitting or needlework like not not a horrible thing like a really wonderful thing but not a very intellectual activity and a lot of what you do there are parts that are drawn and then I've noticed this in your other work elsewhere there are parts that are they're actually just written and like there's one called What I Miss, I think is what it's called. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is amazing. That was like a long essay about like very minor grieving over a one-year relationship that ended. And it was a list of things that I missed. Yeah, I felt like I was looking at it again today and there was a moment in it where you just, you say something like, I miss the time when you paid for everything. Oh, yeah, I do. And then (laughs) then it, it, it said like, Oh, yeah. It said, I missed the worry in your eyes back when you paid for everything. And it has sort of set of wide eyes. Yeah. And then it says, I missed the worry when you stopped paying for anything. And it has these kind of narrow eyes. Yeah. And it made me wonder, these kind of observations that you make about the world, do you catalog them somewhere and then access them? Like you would go to like, you have like files and lists of things, or they just come out when you're working? 
No, I always try to keep files of things. I'm not I'm not very good at remembering. I don't know if there's any way to catalog a feeling so you'll remember it later. So even if I had written that, well, actually, that was based on a diary that I wrote when I was really in pain. I think I had like a month of extreme pain after that breakup and then it was fine. But I keep a diary when I absolutely need to, when, when I have a lot of feelings. And I think I do my best emotional work when I have a lot of feelings or shortly after when I can still remember them. And I think the reason I work on books is that you can do that even when you're not having a lot of feelings. It's slow work. And maybe you'll write the story when, when it comes to you as in inspiration, but when you're just kind of calm the rest of the year, you can um, retrace all the things that you wrote and, and add little things here and there. Hey, I'm going to pause things here just for a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Skagen. Uh, you have probably admired Skagen Danish-inspired watches and jewelry on many wrists in your life. Uh, when you take a closer look, it's easy to know why. Uh, they focus on the meaningful parts of the Danish culture that inspired them. Community, uh, making time for relationships, and living in the moment. Their minimalist watches reflect a less-is-more lifestyle that makes their story intriguing. I've got men's and women's watches, jewelry, smart watches. I've got one. I've got a smart watch. It's not making me walk, but it, it's it could try. Uh, anyway, I really encourage you to check out a Skagen watch today. Uh, you can get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up and put in your email at skagen.com. Thank you to Skagen. Also bringing you the show this week, it's Squarespace. Uh, they sell themselves. It's really easy for me to describe why you should make a Squarespace website. Uh, it's because you're doing something in your life that deserves a uh, permanent home on the web that people can find and admire, whether it's an e-commerce business, maybe it's an art portfolio, uh, a showcase of your design work, whatever it is, you can publish content, you can sell stuff, you can do anything you can do on the internet on Squarespace. They also make it simple to buy domains. Uh, so you get the whole thing, including the 24-7 award-winning customer support, all as part of one simple package that has empowered millions of people to turn their great ideas into something real. So if you're ready to make the next step to make your ideas a reality, go to squarespace.com slash longform. You'll get a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch your site, use the offer code longform. You'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com slash longform, offer code longform. Thank you, Squarespace. I mean, the book isn't, it's about so many things, but I mean, one of the things about it is just like how it feels to exist in the world and how it feels to feel like you don't belong in the world in a way. And first, I'm curious about now that it's out, it strikes me that going out and talking about it is not, might not be your favorite thing. Oh, no, it is. <laughs> oh, it is. Okay, good. <laughs> it's so much more fun than writing it. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's always true. But are you getting, I mean, I know you get this through your, your other work, but are you getting a lot of response from people who sort of identify with that, the way that the character who is mostly you struggles to sort of like find 
a place in the world? I I get a ton of responses from my Instagram cartoons that are these very small, compact observations about feeling different often or feeling heartbroken or various strong feelings. I think you get less responses when you make a large, complicated thing because, I don't know, maybe people feel that they need to write a whole like a whole long email or something and they mm-hmm. don't have the time. It's also possible people just don't aren't reading it. I don't know. I got I got a lot of responses from friends and families and and strangers in the first two days after it came out. And now not a ton. I'm curious to see if there are waves of responses. I kind of don't I don't love getting I love getting comments on Instagram because there's no pressure to answer them but <laughs> although sometimes you do yeah when I'm in, in a vulnerable mood I'll write a snarky response <laughs> well what about your family members that are depicted in in the book how do they how do they feel about it they feel it's really hard to say my mom who's the Libra is like incredibly encouraging to me and she's really arguably the star of the book maybe it's me but maybe it's her I'm writing about her identity as a artist who's a woman and how she kind of struggles between putting her art outward into a career and channeling it into a smaller more magical circle for her family and she ends up quitting an architecture job that's prestigious but a little bit deadening and and moving to the country where my dad's this kind of like magical, innocent, very moral doctor character. Mm-hmm. He's, he's kind of out of Chekhov. And um, she builds this gorgeous house for him and for the family. And she becomes a painter. And she stops focusing so much on her ambitious career and focuses more on her art, which I don't know if, um, if she would have done that if she were male. So I think she feels very vindicated that I've written about her and drawn the beautiful house. But also, like, that's a story I just told that she turned away from ambition. And I think it stings her a little bit to feel like I think that about her. I think she probably thinks of herself as ambitious. And my dad is a very private person. And he tells me he loves the book. He's, he's not a man who expresses himself in complicated sentences usually. My mom says <laughs> that my dad feels a little exposed by the book. Mm. There's a somewhat minor strand of the book that's about neurodiversity (laughs) and I talk about feeling different and explore whether it's from having a different brain wiring and I say in the book that that comes from my dad and he definitely doesn't identify that way so that's a little exposing he he says it's wonderful but I I know I've told a story about him that he doesn't relate to at all in the book, it sort of plays with that notion too, because there's a chapter about your dad, and then, and then you go back to you working on the book, and the rats are there, and the rats are sort of like that's not even accurate. Yeah, that's not. He's not even really like that, and yeah. it kind of leaves the reader wondering. Yeah, is he? Yeah, yeah. How much is he like that? Yeah, do I just project on him? Would I relate to my dad if he were just a totally normal guy? I don't think so. I think I might be projecting on him so that I can relate to him more. Did you have discussions with them before the book, when you were working on the book, about whether or not it could be about them or just informing them that it would be about them? Yeah, I showed it to my mom very early on, and I think she would have rather 
I waited and showed it to her when it was more finished. And she kind of guarded my dad a little bit and didn't, she told me not to show it to him earlier on. I think I wrote in a more rough way about him early on because I was really trying to figure this out. Uh And I don't think I realized at all while I was working on it until they started seeing it that it would be an issue at all. I don't know. (laughs) I guess because we don't grow up like writing and publishing stories, we don't grow up with like a an inner compass of what's invasive and what isn't. Mm-hmm. I'm learning that on social media, like that doesn't even come naturally to me either. I think five years ago I would have like posted pictures of my friends without asking them and now I don't think I would do that. So, well, it, so much of similar. your work's autobiographical or, or seems to be autobiographical. And is that something, I mean, you you, draw right so perceptively about relationships and the experiences of being in relationships and out of relationships yes. and how they break down in these single panels that just capture that but then those are about real people presumably sometimes yes. do you hear from those people that they don't like being portrayed in your work yes <laughs> <laughs> i'm evolving on this i think every time i hear from someone i don't make the same mistake again So I'm in a relationship now and I hardly write about it. And if I do, I try to make it so completely about myself that you can't tell there's even another person involved. Like um, last night I posted a picture of me talking, but there's no other person I'm talking to. (laughs) And it could be my boyfriend, it could be society, it could be a stranger, who knows. But I used, when I would write about relationships, it was always really a relationship that was in trouble or that was over already, or that was not consensual, like a a man I went on a Tinder date with, like not leaving me alone. And mm-hmm. I think if someone crosses your boundaries, you're allowed to write about them. That seems fair. Well, also, even in, in any circumstance, I mean, your part of the story is your story. Yeah, I really try not to be vindictive. But I think looking back, I have, it has come across that way. And I'm more careful now. And I'm glad I wasn't because a lot of cool art came out of it. I wonder if I'm going to need to find a new style now that I'm so sensitive to that. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask you that in a slightly different frame, which is if you got into just a perfectly happy relationship domestic situation, would you fear that you would lose access to some of the motions that have driven some of your work in the past? Yeah, I feel that way right now even. I think I'm in a more respectful relationship than I've been in before and I'm I'm really not writing about my boyfriend and I've never really written about my parents on Instagram. In a funny way, I feel like this book is a much more respectful way about of writing about my parents. It's so at least in my mind it's so complimentary and kind and it treats them as these like fairy tale king and queen in a way, which is so complimentary and also so universal and distant and not invasive. So maybe as my circle becomes full of more people who are not going to leave it, such as perhaps husband, perhaps children, perhaps very close friends, and I don't want to write about these people in quick, quippy ways anymore, maybe I'll have more of a reason to write fiction. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you don't stop doing the ones that are sort of like part of your work that I would just maybe inaccurately, but classify as like men doing bad things or like men being obnoxious in the way that they can be. Yeah. uh, Particularly in public and, but in also in relationships in other ways. And uh, I feel like 
you have a huge number of Instagram followers, for example, and like that must be one reason why people relate to that work is yeah. that it captures that phenomenon broadly yeah. so well. Yeah, it's relatable. Even being in a relationship has made me want to write less mean things about men in general. And maybe just ta- maybe just over time, like, I think maybe my dad has seemed hurt once. Maybe my brother has seemed hurt once. And I really hold on to those things. And I really don't want to offend people. So I don't know. I do feel I feel a lot of grief about the thought of Roe versus Wade being overturned. But I don't feel the same rage that I used to, which is sad. Maybe you only get a couple years of rage per bout of rage and you need to use it wisely. Do you feel like you were driven, not driven by rage, that's not the wrong right way to put it, but that you were pouring a certain rage into your work? Oh yeah, yeah, there was some real rage. I I had a feminist awakening a few years ago. I still don't know where it came from, but as a kid I was so shy and so so lonely and as a teenager and as a person in her early 20s, I don't think I had any anger. I would take any attention from anyone. I would never get angry at someone who catcalled me. I'd, I would be very flattered. And I think the rage... And, and when I was younger, I was protected somehow. I think I was so weird that no one took advantage of me. But then maybe in my late teens, early 20s, I did start to be taken advantage of. And I was always kind of shocked and never angry, but sometimes afraid. And then in my late 20s, I think I'd amassed enough friends and enough dating experience that suddenly it all just crashed down on me in a wave, how angry I was. And suddenly I started to feel like like a woman. And it was really nice to feel like one of this big group of people suddenly. I'd never really felt like a woman before. And is there work that in particular that you think came out of that? Yeah, I think my Instagram account came out of that rage. And I think before I was 28, I would I would take so much bad stuff in a relationship because I couldn't believe I was in a relationship in the first place. I was so amazed that someone would like me. And that's a really bad way to go at it, I think. Well, you mentioned you're, when you were much younger, feeling like you were so weird that you were just way over here. And that's like actually like represented in the book as well. Yeah. And when did you start drawing what role did drawing play in in your childhood i was drawing since i was i think 10 months old my mom had left this vibrant community of architects and art people to live in this idyllic country setting with my dad and she poured all of her art feelings into me and she really praised me for being this baby genius um, which i may or may not have been but but i grew up thinking that i was an amazing artist. There weren't any other artists around besides my mom, so I didn't have anything to compare it to. That's perfect. There were no art classes around. I went to a small parochial school. So you taught yourself. Yeah, yeah. And my mom taught me as a kid. And I was so shy, so I was just always drawing and making things. And it really protected me that it was just common knowledge that I was an artist when I was like five years old. So I didn't feel bad at all that I didn't have friends in nursery school or kindergarten because I was respected. Oh, you have this, there's a scene in here of you sort of drawing like a cartoon of a teacher, like as yeah. a baby. Yeah. And like everyone 
loving that and yeah. no one turning you in for having done it? Was, yeah. is, that, is that a thing that happened? That's a true story. <laughs> I went to a Jewish school that was a, of the Solomon Schechter variety. And there were a lot of teachers who were Israeli in various ways. And this teacher had had a really hard life. I think she was a Holocaust survivor and she'd lived in Israel. And she was this old lady who was very, very bitter and very draconian in her teaching methods. <laughs> she didn't hit us, but I, rem I do remember her like threatening us with rulers and stuff. And she made us memorize these huge tracts of text. And, and if we messed up, she would just like act like we were really stupid and she was a really nasty person but looking back she was probably in her 80s she was very sad she wasn't probably in good health but I'd always drawn and people respected me for it but I'd never like drawn things to show people and this was the first time where I think the way that I feel I'm allowed to draw mean boyfriends. I felt for the first time in my life that I was allowed to do whatever I wanted with this teacher because mm. she had crossed the line. And I drew this comic strip that I won't tell you the real name of it because you'll then be able to identify the teacher. But <laughs> <laughs> it was called Baby Something, which was uh -huh. a nickname of her very bizarre first name. Um, <laughs> and she, I made her as this like baby during the time of the dinosaurs, which was a comment on how old she was. And she was this very bitter baby who walked around in a diaper. And she was, for some reason, the size of the dinosaurs. And she would just walk around like wreaking havoc and creating the extinction of the dinosaurs and things like that. And for the first time, I showed it to the other kids. And, and I became this like 12-year-old celebrity for a second. <laughs> and I was so happy. And then the first thing that happened is my rage went away and I didn't feel comfortable making comic strips anymore. And I still tried to do it. And it was my first experience of faking it, I think, which you have to do all the time as a professional writer mm. or artist. But it freaked me out. I felt like a liar. And then I think looking for new inspiration, I did this horrible thing where <laughs> I can't believe I'm admitting this. Um, <laughs> I was... Yeah, I was kind of a weird kid. So so I was walking around with a pat of butter. I don't know why. And then I was like, why am I holding this? People are going to think I'm weird. It was like normalcy suddenly dawned on me. And I was like, um, I guess I'll add some soap from the bathroom to it. And I had this like plastic baggie of mushed up soap and butter. And then I was like, no, I made it worse. What am I going to do with this? And then I was like, oh, I know. I'm a bad kid. And I left it on her chair. I like squeezed it out on her chair. And I felt terrible remorse the minute I did it. And all the kids saw it and were kind of egging me on. And I sat down and she came into class and and she almost sat and then she saw it and then she went ballistic. And I believe she quit right after that. And no one told on me and the whole class kind of got lectured. And I felt so guilty and so awful and so mean that I never drew a comic strip again until wow. adulthood. Yeah, that's in the book, but I didn't know if that was... Yeah, it was true. That was true. Yeah. That's such a dramatic experience to come from your first sort of like public airing of I your know, work. I and know. Then... I think it's very female. I think creating is not always, but can often hurt people. And especially if you're a cartoonist, you're kind of nasty. And like, that's my great, like, 
my great joy is to make fun of people, but then I also have no desire to hurt people, and I'd rather curl up and and not do anything and not be myself than hurt people. I, I developed an eating disorder soon after that. I think it was indirectly tied to it, but I just didn't want to burst out of my <laughs> constraints. So what brought you back to art? Like, how did you sort of escape from those feelings back into drawing? Well, after that, I think I started to get sad, just probably from normal growing up chemicals. And maybe from the time I was 13 till the time I was 23, I I was very self-conscious and I questioned everything that I drew. And it got worse as I went, when I went to art school, I went to a school that didn't treat cartoonists as as artists Uh it it was like a low art form and Uh my school was a high art school so like painting and that was the yeah what you were supposed to aspire to yeah so and I was kind of gullible and I believed it so I decided to be a painter and my paintings were just muddy messes because I would go over every brush stroke a million times and think like I'm gonna make it good and I think really just practice is how I came out of it. If you draw a person a, a billion times, you stop thinking so hard about whether you're doing it right. Mm. And the rage really helped. Like I think I turned a lot of the things had been going inward and, and I learned how to turn them outward. And your style of drawing, it's I won't have any of the words to describe it really, but it's very distinct. Like I was trying to look up your old regular New Yorker cartoons, which are very difficult to get online, but there is like a yeah. randomizer. And I could just flip through and like I would if I saw one, I could stop on it and know it was yours among many, many, many that I paged through. And how deliberately did you settle on that style? Or is it natural? It's neither natural nor deliberate. A few years ago, I worked very differently. I was trying very hard to look professional and I was working a lot harder on things. Mm. And I think along with the rage and the confidence, I decided that I didn't want to redo things a million times anymore. It's just, it's a sin, I think. And so I started drawing very fast. So what people think of as my style is me drawing really fast, and it's a way to combat the perfectionism. And I'm not sure I'm going to need to draw so fast to combat perfectionism for the rest of my life. This might be a transitional period. But I'm a real fan of fast drawing. I I think drawing perfectly is kind of it's not natural well you you just described going over and over it as a sin which is yeah that's further than saying it's like a bad habit yeah what, why do you describe it as a sin it's the same as circular thinking it's like it's the same as worrying that you're fat and and not being able to live your life because all you're thinking about is i'm fat i can't talk to my friend because i'm fat i can't apply for a job because I'm fat. It's this very, very minor thing that's not even like a real bad thing that's just getting in the way of you being a person. And it's kind of a way of incapacitating yourself so that you don't contribute to the world at all. And I think it's a way certain people are kept down. And if you indulge in it, you're collaborating with the people who want to keep you down or the forces that want to keep you down. To just keep redoing it and redoing it because it's not good enough to show to anyone. It's not good enough to make public. Yeah. Like whether it is good enough or not, I think it's so unfair that the most sensitive and vulnerable people are the ones who censor themselves the most. And Mm. 
it means that all the work we see is by confident people, and confident people aren't better people than sensitive people. So it's our duty not to censor ourselves so much. And confident people don't see the same things in the world. They don't take the time to probably recognize many of the things that yeah. other people without confidence might see on a daily basis. Yeah. So when you when you did sort of return to cartooning, there's the sort of practical question of like, how do you make a living doing that? And you talked about getting the grant for the book. Was that the first sort of like monetary reward for doing cartooning or had you tried to start doing it professionally before the book? I started winning grants before I started putting work out in the world. I got a Fulbright grant after college to go to Brussels and study cartooning and then the Six Points Fellowship. And those were very helpful. I noticed that a lot of college kids I run into think that they have to choose between being an artist and having a job. And I think that's such a weird way to think, but Mm. I felt that way. I thought I need to make a living and I can't apply for jobs because if I apply for jobs, I'll never figure out how to make cartoons or a book. So I really made it my business to get these grants. My college, Cooper Union, had a very strong It had teachers who were very interested in getting Fulbrights for the students. It had Uh, a really uh, good program. So I I found out about that, and I I worked hard at it. Is Brussels like a center of cartooning? Yeah, yeah. I speak French, so I knew I would have a better chance at getting a French-speaking country, and I knew France was more competitive. So I learned that Brussels is a center for great cartoons and comics, which it is. Yeah. So then you, you're you getting grants, and then at what point did you sort of, maybe what I'm asking is, how did you get into the New Yorker? Maybe that's where I'm ultimately headed. But how does a cartoonist who's starting out, at least in that era, try to figure out how you're going to make a living doing it? Like, is yeah. the New Yorker the only game in town? Yes. Or, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Less so now. It was when I was starting, but now there are things like Instagram, a lot of people. I don't know how I don't make money putting things on Instagram. You don't make money on that? I make a bit of money. You I have sell. like 200,000 followers. I guess you you could like draw pictures of like brands or something. Right. Yeah. Some people do sell ads. I don't think I would even if people offered, but they don't offer. I sell like redrawn, what I call redrawn originals, but I really do that just as a courtesy rather than to make money, but I do make some money from it. Yeah. The New Yorker, I found out about the New Yorker in my early teens and I'd been wanting to get in there for a long time, mostly because I'm just a very big fan of Roz Chast and Saul Steinberg. Well, Saul Steinberg had died by the time I found The New Yorker, but they were still posting his posting. <laughs> they were still putting his work on the covers. <laughs> and he's just a genius and so is Roz Chast and neither of them is really a traditional New Yorker cartoonist. Roz Chast had the back page every, pretty much every week when I was starting to read The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. And wow, yeah, it just represented the city and art. And I was living in the suburbs and didn't really fit in. And I kind of schemed that the way to get into The New Yorker was with gag cartoons, because I noticed that there are more gag cartoonists than Roz Chast. How would you, what what defines a gag cartoon? A gag, those are the little gray ones with a caption at the bottom. Uh I liked them. They, They were so not me, but I taught myself. I I would submit gag cartoons once every year or two in the mail and not hear back. And then I started going to the cartoon meetings every year or two. 
And then, those were open to the public or you had to get a like wrangle an invitation? No, they're open to the public. And Bob Mankoff was the cartoon editor and he was kind of gruff, but if you were 25, you would take his gruffness as extreme kindness that he's talking to you, he's giving you tough love. But I would think I wasn't welcome there and then it would take me another another year or two to come back. Also, the cartoonists were mostly older men and mm. I just didn't feel like I belonged there. And then the last time that I came in in this series of very sporadic cartoon submitting, it happened to be a day that a documentary was filming at The New Yorker. Which I, I have seen. Yeah, it's very good. I'm very it's honored to be in it. semi-serious? Very semi-serious. And you're your main character in this documentary. Yeah, it was kind of my first day submitting, at least my first in a couple of years. And I'm billed as like the the new person on the scene. <laughs> it was such a welcoming a welcoming day to start submitting that it kicked me into submitting regularly. Well, the the whole scene of it, it seems nightmarish to me, just that you have to bring your work that you've worked so hard on. You basically hand it to this guy, Bob yeah. Mankoff, who's like legendary yeah. guy. And then he just criticizes it. Yeah, he licks right his finger. He like scrolls through them very quickly. <laughs> and do you think, was there a part of the documentary being filmed that caused him to be somehow nicer than he would have been. I mean, he was nice in the scene, at least in the scene that I've seen, which may or not be, there may have been more to it than that. He's sort of encouraging, but in the mildest possible way, he's sort of like, there might be something here kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And then that's it. Yeah. I think I was more confident than I had been when I'd come in in earlier years. So I needed less coddling. But also I think in front of the camera, he was like, he gave me more time. He was... He's a real showman, so I think he was delighted to have this total newbie in there. And I think he always knew that I was a good cartoonist, and he always was trying to encourage me, but this time I took it as encouragement. He's very brief and terse, but he's, like, very kind. So you you then continued to submit, and then you finally got one in, which is also in the documentary. Yeah. And it is what you described. Do you remember it? Yeah, it's a picture of Slinky's climbing upstairs the way slinkies usually go downstairs and the caption is slinkies going upstairs to spawn or something Eh. well (laughs) i had a couple questions that sprung from that one of which is it seems so hard to me to sit down and try to come up with something like that like i cannot imagine sitting down and being like now i'm going to come up with something clever how do you do that Well, it's not easy, but it's a form. Like, I compare it to a sonnet. I think it's got about the same amount of constraints as a sonnet Uh has. I think a good place to start is to read Bob Mankoff's book, The Naked Cartoonist, which is really a handbook for how to make cartoons. It's like a very polished joke, the way, like, Jerry Seinfeld makes. It also helps to listen to podcasts by comedians hmm. and just learn how to craft a joke. It's a crafted joke. It's not Hannah Gadsby. It's it's Jerry Seinfeld. You want a lead up at the beginning of the caption. Like the lead up can be the drawing and the caption can be the punchline or some version of that. The beginning of the caption can be the lead up and the end of the caption can be the punchline. But you want you want to trick people midway. You, it's like a one two punch. First people are like, "Oh, a dinner party." nothing funny here and then you're like oh no there's a joke here (laughs) (laughs) i don't know but also it seems so 
not so different from your other work. Again, the style is like your drawing style is recognizable, but the the kind of like punchline aspect of it, when I look at other cartoons of yours, oftentimes they, they have no punch. The, the punchline is in the drawing or they actually just kind of trail off in this way yeah. that's more powerful. And I'm wondering about switching back and forth between those modes. Yeah, it's. I think it's good to switch back and forth because you do get fatigue working in one mode, especially if it's a kind of small mode. Mm-hmm. And I think my, my Instagram cartoons, like even though they're very much me, it's also kind of a narrow format and and you can't just keep churning them out. You get bored and you start parodying yourself and it's good to work in another format for a while. Yeah, but it is sometimes I think of ideas just from life. It often happens when I'm very social or when a lot of people are being mean to me and then I'll just like it could either come from revenge or from noticing something funny that I'll get this idea that I need to put in a New Yorker cartoon and then I'll email the idea to myself and turn it into a cartoon later. But sometimes I have no ideas and it's been a very quiet week and I've been working on a book all week or or doing freelance work all week. And what I need to do then is go somewhere very, very quiet and just like make myself come up with ideas. And (laughs) it's a weird it's a weird thing to do. I just doodle all day. And for the first hour, I'm just doodling. And suddenly, I'll make something that that has an idea in it. And then the ideas kind of flow. And then they kind of stop flowing. But usually, I get enough to gather and turn into cartoons the next day. And at what point did you feel... I could imagine that if The New Yorker is like the only game in town at that time, and you start getting cards in The New Yorker, it could either sort of be... I've got the thing I wanted and it's actually not as satisfying as I wanted or I got the thing I wanted and now I feel like I have a platform to like go do this for real. Yeah. And I'm curious like where on the spectrum of those possibilities you fell. I think I felt that I had a platform but it's so selling a cartoon doesn't mean you're a New Yorker cartoonist some suddenly and even becoming a New Yorker cartoonist which I really feel like now I sell pretty regularly like you don't know that you're going to be a New Yorker cartoonist next month. So I don't know. I'm kind of a pessimist and I never think of it as my only platform, but it does feel like a platform. I just try to make sure it doesn't feel like my only platform. It feels great. When did you start doing Instagram drawings or putting your drawings on Instagram? Are they drawn for Instagram or just you have a lot of things going on. You're like, oh, this one, I'll just throw it on Instagram. Oh, no, they're always pretty much always for Instagram. Mm. I started doing those early on. I think I sold one New Yorker cartoon and then another a few months later, maybe. But then there was about a year when I wasn't selling any. And and I just felt so frustrated. And I felt like I was becoming more and more conservative in my cartoons to try to fit in exactly to what the New Yorker wanted. And it felt like less of a platform. It felt like more of, again, like curling up into a ball and just trying to not stand out. And and that's when I was having my feminist moments also. And, and I thought, hey, I can't curl up into a ball. I have things to say. And I have an experience that might not find a place in any publishing venue. And, and I want to put it out into the world. And yeah, it doesn't come naturally to think that way. And it was I'm glad I did at that moment. People really respond. I mean, the comments, people who they just really connect with sort of like, I know exactly what you're talking about here. I feel like that's a lot of the comments. 
do you do you feel like you have something comes for you out of that relationship like a direct relationship with readers yeah too much it feels like when you're a kid and your parent praises you it's just like it feels like love it's just like so (laughs) I wish I didn't like it so much and I think I'd be a better writer of books if I didn't need all that validation do you feel like people now who don't really know you feel like they know you Oh, yeah. That I don't like, strangely enough. Like, I I love getting a very brief comment saying, I relate completely. And it's, like, so strange and wonderful to me that anyone would feel that way. But I really don't like getting a random face message saying, like, oh, hey, f- hey, friend. <laughs> we I was wondering if you're free for coffee next week. I'm traveling in New York. So I I thought like, since we're buddies, we should get coffee. And I'm like, oh my God, did I forget this person? Is this an old friend who I forgot? And, and I'll say, are you, who are you? And they'll say, oh, we've never met. I just, we just know each other because I follow you on Instagram or something. And it's terrifying. It feels, I mean, I know no one means to be terrifying and it shouldn't be terrifying, but I guess I've had enough, like most people and definitely most women I've had enough strange interactions with strangers that I don't really welcome them yeah and I never meet the people for coffee and and it also makes me feel so mean because people were so nice to me when I was a young person like Roz Chast wrote me letters when I wrote to her she wrote back and Myra Kalman let me be her intern and the Sal Steinberg Foundation had me as an intern and I wrote Stacy Schiff, one of my favorite biographers, a letter a few years ago, and she now we're friends. And I'm not doing that. She blurred that. your book. Yeah, she blurred my book, and I'm not I'm not doing that for any young people. There are too many <laughs> with the internet. I think wow. I used to let people in to a lot more. I used to meet everyone for coffee, and then I really did have people like expect a lot from me, and then be angry when I couldn't give everything they asked for. And it it really happens a lot. And now I'm pretty cautious. Yeah. That seems hard to go from wanting help and mentorship from other people to then like people wanting it from you, but too many of them wanting it at the same time. I'm not good at it. I really respect people who are good at it. It takes a lot of kindness and graciousness. Yeah. And time. Yeah. 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 You sort of mentioned this and wait, no, I wanted to ask you before I get to that, I wanted to ask you about your advice column. Because you also have an advice column yes. for The New Yorker, <laughs> which is called Dear Pepper, which I then learned from reading your book was the name of your your dog. Yes. Beloved dog. Are you responding from the perspective of a dog? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I called it Dear Pepper. I think a lot of my ideas just come from like, oh, that's a cool idea. And it doesn't come from a deep place. And then it grows into a meaning. But I was just riffing off of Dear Sugar, uh-huh. which I really love. And and I thought, oh, Dear Pepper is kind of a, the flip side of Dear Sugar. And oh, Pepper was my dog. So why don't I make her a character? <laughs> but I like even I feel like in some of the advice columns, like there is like a dog like a dog appears yeah. in different in different places. And you sort of say in responding to people's questions, which are real, they're regular advice column questions. Yeah. It wasn't intended as that. It was intended as an etiquette, not etiquette, but like, I don't even know what the word is for this, like very minor um, annoyance column, mm. like Larry David kind of things. Like, how do I keep people from walking into me on the street? Or <laughs> yeah. my husband eats very loudly. How do I politely 
like not have to hear him or stuff like that. And I, I asked for those kinds of questions and nobody sent them. So oh, really? yeah. So, but I'm getting, I didn't feel qualified to answer real questions, but now I do. And I'm really glad they're coming. Yeah. I mean, these are real, like some of them are like straight out of the ethicist or something. Like yeah. I accidentally got an extra pair of pants that I bought at Target and yes. do it, should I return them? Yeah. What do you think about that? I like, I really like that one. Well, that was one where you said something like, if I were human, I would say do this or something like that. Maybe that wasn't that one, but yeah, I said that they shouldn't necessarily return the pants. They, I think they bought like five pairs of pants, and the cashier only scanned three of them or something, and so they got two free pairs of pants, and they wanted to know if they should go back and pay for the pants. And I said no, but I've heard I love advice columns, and I've heard uh, Judge John Hodgman answer a similar question, and he said yes, of course, return the thing you got for free, but. I don't know. I don't feel that way. Uh, but I liked your, you were making a distinction between the sort of human victim of that. Like if there was some reason to believe oh, the right, clerk right, would right. be exactly uh, yeah. docked their pay because yeah. of those pants, but it's a giant corporation. Yeah. It's sort of like you owe humans that responsibility, yeah. but you don't owe corporations that. That's what I took yeah. away from it. Corporations yeah, that responsibility. It was their mistake. Yeah, that was the answer that... But I'm sure there's someone out there who can explain why Target counts as a human. I'm not sure I'd want to listen to them, but <laughs> there's definitely an argument for that. But how 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 many times a week do you do the advice stuff? It's once every two weeks. Once every two weeks. Yeah, and and I'm really channeling my mom, who's this consummate advice giver. And I kind of think Pepper was my 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 mom was my human mom, and Pepper was my animal mom. So there's a connection for me there. And Pepper's also in the book. Uh, I've, I've, I don't want to give away parts of the book <laughs> or like overanalyze them because I feel like this idea that it's sort of a fairy tale. I feel like someone like me sort of like ham handedly trying to describe parts of it kind of ruins it. Oh, yeah, that's not on you. I think it's just a bit obscure. <laughs> but I am interested in s some of the ideas like the shadow. There's this idea of your shadow and your shadow leaving you and coming back and what it takes to bring your shadow back. And I wondered if you could sort of describe what the shadow encompasses, if that makes sense. Yeah. The book was originally called The Shadow and then Light and Shadow before it was called Passing for Human. And when I was writing it as The Real Life of Sebastian Knight, it was written by a person whose wonderful, mysterious, brilliant brother who never gave him the time of day has died. And and then I switched it to someone kind of like me writing about an imaginary sister. And somewhere along the way, the sister turned into a shadow. And I was, I'm writing about my shadow who has left me. And then I made up a story about how all girls are born with a living shadow. And the shadow is there to follow behind you and push you to be who you really are instead of who society wants you to be. And that somewhere between being a child and adult, you lose your shadow, usually because the forces of society are just too strong and the, the shadow weakens and either she just falls away or you chase her away because she's, she's pulling you away from fitting in and from doing what's expected of you and she's making your life harder. So I, I tell the story of how first how my mom lost her shadow and how that was kind of a blessing and a curse and that she got to stop being who who she was supposed to be as a 
I don't know, like a nice Jewish girl who was born in, in the 1950s, mm-hmm. who's supposed to get married and, and lead a certain kind of life and not have a career. But then the lack of her shadow eventually makes her kind of rudderless and able to be blown around by any winds that come at her. And then and then my own story of, of losing my shadow is tragic because my mom doesn't want me to lose my shadow like she's she cares so much that I keep her and she does everything in her power to let me keep my shadow. But then it turns out that my shadow is this strange, unusual, unwieldy, kind of scary, large creature. <laughs> and my mom changes her mind about it. And, and when I, I lose the strength that comes from my mom's belief, I also um, lose... I'm explaining this so badly, but but I, I lose my shadow and I become, quote, normal and... I'm writing this book to try to figure out how I lost my shadow and why I lost my shadow. And I hope that if I can figure it out, I'll be able to get her back. <laughs> I, that I, I think is an excellent description. And Too many nouns or something. <laughs> I felt like I was just reading a long list. Yeah. I mean, also people should read the book because there are also... So many nouns in this book. Drawings that, that are beautiful and that help navigate that whole story. But... How does that interact with the rage? Because you've talked about rage a couple of times in terms of that becoming fuel for you pushing yourself out in the world and like doing the kind of work you want to do. And there there seems to be like there's some sort of crossover in that concept. And I wondered if they were sort of one and the same or they're sort of intermingled with each other. Yeah, I think the rage comes from feeling that I'm not entitled to my shadow in a way. And the rage is a powerful tool to bring her back. Because if you agree that you're not entitled to your shadow, you're never going to get her back. The rage, well, the shadow for me represents both my weirdness and my obsessive drawing. It was like my identity as a kid was that I was drawing constantly. And and I, I started conflating that with my extreme shyness and my extreme awkwardness. And I stopped drawing when I started learning how to fit in. And I think the rage had to do with thinking that I had to lose all, like the main thing about me. That the goal was to become quote unquote normal. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't know if I would have been pushed to do that if I had been a boy. I think maybe I would have been embraced by the other kids, even though I was awkward and I wouldn't have stopped drawing. I would have been proud to draw and I wouldn't have felt so bad for getting that teacher to quit. <laughs> Maybe I would have even been proud of it. Not that I should have been, but I probably would have kept trying. There's one more thing I want to ask you about, which I, again, don't know if I can articulate well, but there's there are a lot of like pages that I folded over in this book just talking about For story. shame. Story. <laughs> I, you think the book is too nice to be... No, I no, I'm joking. No, no, I'm joking. Post-its or something. I think it's so funny when people hate... <laughs> The folded page. I'm a page folder. I have to fold pages. I'm not, I'm not carrying enough pieces of paper with me. Um, just about stories and kind of the idea of living in stories and that our lives being constructed of stories. And there's one beautiful metaphor about... The Carl Reef. Yes. I was wondering if you, maybe you could restate it so that I won't poorly restate it. This is in the last chapter one. It's told from the point of view of my shadow, but she has she's already escaped from me and she's run into my mom's lost shadow 
and my mom's last shadow is telling my last shadow her life story and she's telling her about my mom's mom the chapter is about how there's a lineage of of women in my family losing their shadows and how all the shadows kind of gather together and form this community of lost shadows in the woods and I forget how I tie it into this tradition of women telling each other stories but I talk about my grandmother kind of gathering up all her knowledge of what it means to be a woman and delivering that knowledge to her two daughters in the form of stories. And I say that a story is like a coral reef and that the people who deliver the stories are like the coral creatures and they live inside the story and they add a little bit and they take a little bit away and then they die. And when they die, the story is left. And I think I've done some research about fairy tales and that's really what a fairy tale is. It's stories that are usually told by women to younger women about what it means to be a woman. And that's what what you get when you're living life kind of underground and, and you're quiet and you're weaving. You're not making great paintings and you're not writing books. You're telling quiet stories to your daughter and your granddaughter. And the stories are really beautiful and really personal and they're also kind of messed up because inside the story is embedded the idea that you're not supposed to break out and write the books and make the paintings. And when you've done that and you are doing that and you're doing it on a daily basis, does it change the story for you when it goes out into the world? What does it do to you when the stories are now embraced by this larger group of people? I don't relate to my stories after I scan them in and finish them, but I think if they don't go out in the world, they kind of come back and like cling to me and destroy me. Like how I said, it's a sin to redraw and redraw. I think it's a sin to make art and not show it to anybody also. Not a sin, it's just painful. It can hurt you. But I think I send my stories out like little boats and they come back to me bringing um, food. <laughs> I think I really, I know many artists aren't like this and I, it's a better way to be than I am, but I really need for people to see what I write. It's if they don't, I think I would stop writing and I think I would just curl up in a ball and stop existing. It's a form of communication and I need to know that I'm being heard. Well, Liana, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to my guest, Liana Fink, for coming in. To my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, as always. To our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. To our intern, Tyler McCloskey. And to our sponsors, which this week include Park Row Books, Sleeping Beauty Dreams, The Show, Squarespace, Scoggin, and Tilted, The Podcast. We will see you next week. Well, hey, Evan. Yeah. There you go. Uh, remind me, uh, what's the deal with that Wired thing? This weekend, I will be in San Francisco for the Wired 25th anniversary of Wired Magazine celebration. Come check out the festival. It's at the Commonwealth Club. We'll do a live podcast with Andy Greenberg Sunday is there, afternoon. Is there, a, is there a date, like a date in the month of that for people who are listening and aren't sure when this came out? That would be Sunday, October 14th for my event. But 20, the, 2018. 2018. 
2018. If you're listening to this in 2019, you missed the Wired 25th anniversary. <laughs> so Sorry. the 13th and 14th of October, come check it out. Come check us out. We'll see you there. A special thanks uh, for supporting this show this week goes out to the new contemporary dance and art show, Sleeping Beauty Dreams, coming to New York City this holiday season. It's a story never told, the dreams of Sleeping Beauty during her 100-year slumber. It stars the Marinsky Ballet's prima ballerina Diana Vishnuva and many other uh, internationally renowned choreographers, artists. Uh, they got music by the Dutch electronic innovators, Noisia. Uh, I checked out the trailer, and I'll just say it is my ballet pick for this holiday season. So get tickets. Uh, it's at the legendary Beacon Theater on December 14th and 15th. Ticketmaster.com, Sleeping Beauty Dreams. Again, Ticketmaster.com, Sleeping Beauty Dreams. Also supporting the show this week, Park Row Books. They published Under My Skin. Get the audiobook now. It's by New York Times bestselling author Lisa Unger. Poppy is determined to unravel the mystery around her husband's death. But can she handle the truth about what really happened? There's only one way to find out, and that is to pick up Under My Skin. Cue it up. Put it on your smart speaker today. Uh, Again, Under My Skin from Park Row Books. Thank you to them. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.